When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Joss Stone. Thanks for joining me for a cup of happy. I spent the last few years singing my songs in every country in the world and been lucky enough to meet incredible people from all walks of life. What really struck me is that no matter where we are, we're all on the same mission. We're all just trying to find our version of happy. So with this podcast, I'm going to be speaking to a whole host of people to dig deeper into the what, why, and how of this emotion we call happiness. I hope that with these conversations, you discover something to help you on your own quest for happiness, possibly change your mind on a few things, and along the way, share a good old laugh with me and my guests. My guest today is a professor in the public understanding of psychology at the University of Hertfordshire. Handy for us, the public, who would really like to understand some of this stuff. He's written a number of popular psychology books to help us enrich our lives. He also has first-hand knowledge of human behavior in action as a member of the Magic Circle. And some of his work is in collaboration with our very first ever guest on A Cup of Happy, the illusionist Darren Brown. Today we discuss tips for dealing with nerves, using accountability to stick to your goals, and staying grateful for the now. We talk about some of his books, including The Luck Factor and 59 Seconds. Here he is, Richard Wiseman. Richard, you have been making me laugh already. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Okay, so Mr. Magician and Comedian. Are you actually a comedian? You should be. I think a lot of my colleagues see me in exactly that way. I I have done. (laughs) I've done a little bit of stand-up-y things and quite a lot of magic. And during magic, it's helpful if you're funny. Well, if you're not very good, it's helpful if you're funny. So, so it's very helpful to me if I'm funny. Yes, I've done a little bit. Oh gosh, I always find that that's the most like terrifying of job descriptions. Trying to make people laugh on stage. Oh my god! Oh, it's the worst thing. Oh. It's the worst thing because I used to work as a magician, and the pressure on you to fool people or to make them laugh is enormous. Where now, as I go out as a psychologist, if I give a talk and it's not very funny then you can just fall back on at least it's interesting. Right, exactly. So yes, the pressure's off. Totally, because then you can rely on the actual information that is just brilliant all on its own. (laughs) Absolutely. Have you tried any comedy things? I haven't tried comedy, no. But in between my songs, I have this horrible habit of, I try to make light of the song that was before, even though my songs are very, it's soul music. So sometimes it's like, desperately upsetting the concept of the song can be like oh you know you cry but I feel so bad by the time I get to the end of it because it is emotional I have to crack a joke and it is the worst (laughs) habit I don't know why I do it I wish I wouldn't do it because I'm actually not very good at telling jokes either so it's just it's just is it a joke to do with the song or just go you know two men walk into a bar you know and uh... (laughs) no It would just be something stupid. I don't know. It could be anything just to make fun of of the emotion that we just went through, which is completely wrong, you know. Oh, no, I applaud that bravery. But so you have to forgive me. I know nothing about music at all. No, neither do I. (laughs) 
you're fine. When you do magic or comedy, you know how it's registering with the audience because you hear a laugh or you hear yeah. a gasp. But with music, I don't know what it's like. Do you know when it's going well and when it's not going so well? I do. I feel like if people are talking amongst themselves, <laughs> then it's definitely not going well. <laughs> you know, so there's a kind of hustle and bustle when you know they're talking about the show and it's like, and it comes at certain times in between certain moments. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. They might be laughing at that or they might be going, wow, that bass player is amazing or something. But no, when it's just that rumble, mm -mm, not good, oh, not good. You, want, not you good. want their attention, you know? It's very important. I find as a speaker that there's a difference with silence. There's a difference between bored silence and interested silence. Yes, that's so true. I've never known what I'm picking up on, but sometimes you can tell, oh, they're quiet because they're just bored, or they're, or they're quiet because that's, they're, they're really interested. It's a very strange thing as a performer. I think people don't realise how responsive you're being to the crowd in front of you and how much they're shaping what you're doing. I think people just think it's a one-way street sometimes. Yeah, and, totally. And, and, and you really are picking up on that and playing with it. The other thing I find fascinating, I don't know whether you've had this, the speed at which whatever it is, a 1,000, 10,000 people, 100 people, whatever it is, the speed at which they become one person. Oh, yes. It's phenomenal. You walk out to a group. And within seconds, they're one person that's decided that they like you, they don't like you, they're going to cheer, they're not going to cheer, whatever it is. I always, as a social psychologist, I find that fascinating. Yeah, why is that? That's that mob mentality, isn't it? Yeah. It's like they've all got together before you've walked out and said, I know, we really like these sorts of songs, or we'll all cheer at this point. And you think, how have you decided that? It must be contagion in the crowd or, or whatever it is. It's weird, as I'm a speaker, not a musician, but I stand in the wings and I think, my goodness, there's a thousand, three thousand people, whatever. That, this is going to be crazy. You walk out and you think, this is like just talking to one person. They've all decided to be a particular personality tonight. That's so strange. What an interesting thought. I haven't really looked at it like that, but you're completely right. There is a feeling. You go to a venue, it could be a thousand people, like you say, and I have experiences of different countries. So it would be like, oh, in Sao Paulo, they're going to be this way. But there's thousands of people there. How do you know they're going to be that way? Yes. But I just know because I've been there and that's how it is. And they, they are that way together. They're not that way individually, separately. It's like one, it's a mob. Yes. <laughs> they are the mob of joy. Presumably they haven't been exchanging texts before you walked on and all decided we're going to be like this. Right. So it's something that happens very naturally. What do you do with nerves? Have you got any sort of top tips for nerves? Yeah, I have. My tip is to do it, which isn't a very good tip, but it's just whatever it is that you're scared of. And the more you do that, okay. the less scared you will become. There is no other way. I don't think there is. I don't think if you do star jumps, press-ups, cry, puke. I don't think it works. I mean, I've been performing for like 20 years, almost next year, it'll be 20 years. And if you're nervous, all you can do is talk to yourself and say, don't be so silly. You've done this before. But if you haven't done it before, then that's not a good piece of advice. Yes. But really, all you can do is put one foot in front of the other and realize it's just one step after one step, one word after one word, one song after one song, one person after one person. So just make it as small as you possibly can and begin. And then after that, you'll be less nervous for the next time. But it's just nerves sucks. They're, they're the worst. The only thing I was ever told that I found useful was telling yourself you're not nervous, you're excited. Oh, that's nice. So you redefine all the physiological stuff as I'm really excited about this. But for me, if it's new stuff, 
you know, that's genuine nerves because you just don't know how that's going to go. It's a fear. Yes. So it's like excited is like butterflies. It's like, yay, I'm going to do this thing. Yes. <laughs> a fear is like, oh my God, what if I die? You know, it's like, oh, it's the worst thing in the world. Well, I've found sometimes you're surrounded by people that don't realize how nervous you are. So they're like, oh, it's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be like last night. And you're sort of thinking, I don't know that it will be actually. Last night I was on a real roll. Yeah. And I, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I can do that again. Oh, it's awful, isn't it? Honestly. And people have so much faith in us, but we don't have the same amount of faith in us. No, that's right. And they don't know that we're, we're standing there actually kind of quaking in your boots. Mm-hmm, exactly. Funny old thing. I have a million questions for you, but that brings me on to this important thing. I know that you studied 3,000 people's resolutions and tracked that, which is super interesting and amazing idea to do. And lots of things have come out of that. So the resolution study, well, I can't remember what it was now, about 2003, maybe something like that. Oh, so wow. About 20 years really? Ago. So, Gosh. Yeah. So, so people bring these things up and often I struggle to remember the details. And what I do, instead of saying I can't remember, I always make stuff up. And oh, I, no. I, 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 no, <laughs> oh, yes. Our data clearly showed this. Can I get off the interview? I no. Google it. I go, why did I say that? Why didn't I just say, I don't know, I can't remember? I can't remember. Uh, I can't remember. So I've got terrible memory anyway, okay. uh, plus 20 years. So anything I'm about to say about the resolution study may or may not be true. It needs to be checked. Okay. It should be checked. Right. It should be checked. Okay, yes. right. If people care. <laughs> okay. So the resolution study, what I had read, which might be a big load of Billy bullshit now, because it... If you've read it, you're more knowledgeable than I am about this at this, oh, okay. at this That's moment. Good. So That's yes, good. yeah. So I should be interviewing you about the resolution study. Yeah, probably. One of the things that came out of it was that making yourself accountable to other people makes you more likely to stick with your resolution. So if you say, I'm going to lose a pound a day for 30 days, and you put it online, or you tell your family and your friends and your kids, you're more likely to achieve that goal. So the question that I had really was, why is it easier to let ourselves down privately and quietly? than it is letting other people down, in your opinion? Why do other people matter more than our own opinion of ourselves? That's a very, very interesting question. And one in 20 years I haven't been asked about the resolution study. So that's very refreshing. So that strategy is called public commitment. And what's interesting about it is that if you remove the social dimension, i.e. you just write that you're going to do this and put it on your refrigerator door, it still works. There's something about the externalizing of it that is very important. The social dimension is important as well, but just the externalizing is important. And I think part of it is that you can kind of convince yourself, if you don't do that, that you can convince yourself that those weren't your goals or actually that wasn't very important to you anyway. Um, so you can morph it. You can kind of go, I, I didn't really want to lose that weight anyway. It's not very important. I'm quite happy with the weight I am. You, you can do this thing that we all do, which is we look at our behavior and make up a story to justify it. Oh, so it's believing your own lie. That's right, which is part of being human. When people tell me stories about their lives, most of those stories involve them either being some hero figure or, or at least being a very kind and nice person. There's very few people that will say, you know what, I'm not a very pleasant person and here's all the terrible things that I've done. No, oh gosh. And so we make up these stories because that's what keeps us going. Now, I think what's interesting about externalizing and or telling other people 
is that you kind of cement the story. You kind of go, no, this is what I do want to achieve. I can't morph that. I can't change it now without losing face or at least admitting that I've just changed the thing that I wanted to achieve. I think that's why it's particularly successful. Mm, okay. Plus, there's going to be a competitive element that you're telling your friends you can do this and it's nice to think you can achieve your goals. You're not the sort of person that backs out and so on. So, yeah, that was one of the, the strategies we used. I mean, in general, people were terrible at keeping their New Year's resolutions. I do remember that. It, it, like Within a week, most of it had gone. Have you ever made a resolution for yourself, New Year's? I don't think I have. Oh. I know. I, I probably should have done, but I don't sort of work like that. I mean, I, I just sort of decide what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I'm not very good at planning ahead. I'm quite good at living in the moment and just sort of deciding what feels right now. So I don't really, I'm not big on long-term plans mm-hmm. because I think the world's quite a fluid and uncertain place. And, and my fear is that by having a big certain goal, I'll miss an opportunity to go in another direction and actually, it would have been much more interesting or much easier or something like that. So I try and keep that kind of openness. It could keep you stuck. Nobody likes to be stuck. No one likes to be stuck. I noticed that when I was doing the work with luck, that some of the unlucky people were in a rut. They kind of had a one plan for moving forward, and they just kept on going at that plan, even though it was unsuccessful. Oh, so they weren't adjusting to what was going on around them. And opportunities would come along, and they would literally just not see them. The number of meetings I've been in, book meetings and so on, where I've been, we've all been thinking about a certain book. And then somebody, me or somebody else, has mentioned another idea, which is far better than the idea we're all working on. And the group hasn't noticed it because we're all stuck on book A or idea A instead of going, whoa, 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 hold on. That's way better. That's much easier. That's much more current. Let's all just switch direction and move in this way. I mean, the team I work with, I've worked with for 30 years in psychology, they know that up until we do that experiment, it all may change until we actually press the green light. It might be the day before I come in and go, we're going to do everything differently because I've had a much better idea rather than pursuing something which is set in stone. And all of that work beforehand isn't lost. It may have brought you to that idea. It's not wasted time or anything like that or wasted energy. Yeah, I feel like we must, whether we are doing something for the greater good or something for ourselves or for anyone else, make our own individual decisions because you have to live with them. Yeah, absolutely, you do. Yeah, absolutely. And not blame others at the same time. You cannot blame yes. other people because the blame is what makes us unhappy, I think. That's right. But whenever I made a decision I thought it was for the good of somebody else or for the good of another group, I've never regretted that decision. I've never looked back and going, you know what, I wish I'd been meaner. I wish I'd been more selfish. (laughs) I wish I'd I'd done something for myself. Those are not the decisions you regret. You know, the the ones you regret is you think, ah, you know what, I just did that out because I was being a bit selfish and I could have been a little bit kinder. Those are the ones you regret. My advice, you know, when I sort of ask to kind of help sort of organisations out is normally just stop what you're doing and just do the opposite. If you're trying to build the biggest customer base, try to build the smallest one of people that really care about you. Yeah. Whatever it is, do the opposite. And so I'm based up in Edinburgh, the Edinburgh Fringe, which will be happening quite soon. I've seen obviously hundreds and hundreds of shows, and they all involve a performer. So a few years ago, I put on a show that involved no performer. The audience came in, and there were just slides on the screen that took them through various psychological experiments. Oh. And that came from... I'm not saying it was a great show. In fact, it was terrible. I mean, it's it just walked out. Uh, but it was... <laughs> it was <laughs> no, they did. They did, eventually. Unless they're still there. 
Uh, that <laughs> came from the idea of doing the opposite of everyone else is doing. I always think that's that's the easiest kind of form of creativity. That is so funny. So instead of making an album full of music, I should just make an album full of silence. Absolute silence. It will spell. <laughs> it will. And performing it is so much easier. It's so much easier. <laughs> so much easier. You don't even have to turn up. No. Oh my god, that is a very interesting idea. <laughs> Yes, I, I think so. I love this. I love that you are a professor at Harvard for um, psychology and we have come up I'm with... I'm not a at family. Harvard. I'm not at Harvard. Oh, you're not? Where are you? I'm at Hertfordshire. <laughs> I'm oh, not Hertfordshire. at Harvard. <laughs> 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 That's even funnier. I know. Oh, my it's God. A... <laughs> for crying out loud. I was going to let that one go. And I thought, no. I thought, I will be honest. I will be honest. You're at Hertfordshire. Hertfordshire, yes. Begins with H. So, you are a professor at Hertfordshire, not. I believe so. And um, you teach psychology. Yes. Okay, so now I didn't really go to school. I don't know if you can tell. That's right. But I'm jealous of everyone that does. And one day I'm going back. I left at like 14. I just, I had a job, so I had to move on. But I missed out on all this wonderful education. So I have a really silly question. I'm sure everyone listening will think, why are you even asking this? But could you break down for me what it is exactly that you're teaching? Is it like the actual brain or how, you know, the emotional brain or like, what is, what is it that you're teaching? What do psychologists do? I guess that's the, the question, isn't it? They're therapists, right? You're a therapist. Ah, no, this is the thing. So, no, I'm not, as you might be able to tell from, uh, I would be the worst therapist in the world. You'd be a brilliant therapist. Really? You should 100% do that. Could you imagine? Yeah, everyone will laugh. Laughter is is healing. The most experienced therapist I know, I said, what are you thinking during most of the sessions? And he said, most of the time I'm thinking, boy, this really is all about you, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, yes, it is. (laughs) That's funny. Anyway. So what do psychologists do? Well, it depends who you ask, but you're asking me, so I'll give you my opinion. Psychologists don't have to do anything about the brain. The brain is the big sort of bit of jelly stuff that's inside your head. What psychologists are interested in is how you think and how you feel and how you behave. And they tend to use the word mind rather than brain. Oh, okay. I see. Okay. We're not talking about like um, physical pathways, neurological pathways or anything like that. Well, many psychologists do do that now. And that's called neuropsychology. And that's where you get brain scanning and all that stuff. It's just not what I do. And I argue that you don't need to know very much about the brain. So for example, if we want to to cheer you up, I don't need to know about dopamine levels and bits of your brain. I just need to make you laugh. Yes. And that's to do with the mind. I don't need to understand anything about how your brain works in order to cheer you up. And so I would argue we don't need to know very much about the brain. We do need to understand the mind, and the mind is very, very complicated. And people are quite complicated. And what psychologists try to do is come out with sort of general rules about how we think, feel, and behave. And that's what they've done for arguably about 130 years, something like that. And my job, because I'm sort of a communicator, is to take all that academic stuff, which is sometimes quite complicated, and, and get it out into the public in a way that hopefully makes people's lives a little bit better. Are there really right and wrong answers with the studies? And, you know, when you're dealing with your students, you have to mark their papers or whatever it is that you have to do. Yes, in that sense there is. You mark papers and you give people grades and all that sort of thing. The bigger question, which is, is there more general patterns of behaviour? I would argue that there is. I think there's things you can tell people that are counterintuitive that they're not doing 
that if they were to do them, will make them more successful or happier or in better relationships and so on. And that's really the bitter psychology that I'm interested in. I'm, I'm not into the theory so much as just practically, how do you make the world a better place? It's that simple. It's the same thing that you do with your music. You know, you make people's world better. Just trying to give a little bit of good feeling. Yeah. In that sense, you're the same as a psychologist. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? You're probably more effective than a psychologist. I mean, you put on one of your, it's not a record anymore, is it? Yeah, it's a record. Are. To me, it's a record. In my day, it was a great, you have a gramophone or a wax disc. Well, we had CDs when we were kids. Yes. Now we're making vinyls. So each record I make, I make a vinyl. Right. An LP, like, you know, scratched in there. Yes. And um, it disappeared for a while, but I still wanted to make them because there's a small amount of people that really, really, like, they want the vinyl. And I have to convince whoever it is that's putting the record out to print them because they're like, why? It's such a waste of money. Why are we doing this? But it's just come back around now. It's become very popular. So Vinyls were great. I used to buy them as a kid. And it was always good at parties because people would start to dance and the needle would go across the record and skip to another track. That was always the uh, exciting bit. But you never knew what you were going to get, basically. So that uh, was good. The CDs didn't have that quite so much. Anyway, so songs. Songs is a good word, isn't it? In that sense, I think you're probably far more effective than most psychologists at changing people's mood and how they see the world and so on because you've got this wonderful medium, this wonderful way of getting straight from your mind into their mind and that's kind of phenomenal it's kind of a sneaky little way really because it's like you don't know what music's going to hit you so it's a little bit like when you're grabbed by something and you just don't know that it's going to pull you down or lift you up it's a bit mad really music can be a real like rush like a wave that just washes over you and goes oh I feel this way gosh I didn't expect that but if you're talking to a psychologist you are very much you're focused on what's happening. You understand that this person knows a lot more than you do about your own brain. And I do think certain people are way more open to that. They're more open to information and data, especially, although people make up data now and they make up stats and then we all believe them. <laughs> but, you know, when you, you feel like you're talking to somebody that really knows, you know. I don't know very much about psychology and music, but the, the one thing which I don't think has been very much research into is why when we're sad, we want to listen to sad songs. Oh, it's comfort. We don't want to be alone. But you think you might listen to a song that makes you happy, where actually, funnily enough, you seek out the emotion which you're you yourself experiencing. It's an odd one. Misery loves company. So I have a song that I listen to when I feel upset and I would like to change that. So if you are feeling upset and you want to feel understood, that's when I think blues comes into it. Ah, oh, that's interesting. Um, and you're like, I need to feel understood because right now I don't. I just need to know that I'm not the only one. And that's like a cuddle in itself. But if you want to actually get on with your life, play something like Kirk Franklin looking for you, like upbeat gospel music or, you know, something that will make you laugh. Play I'm a Barbie girl, for God's sake. Go for it. Play If You Want to Be My Lover, you know, or I Will Survive. You know, these are the songs that really, they change your mood. And they allow you to walk forward in a positive manner and change your bad day into a good one. So the sad songs are about acceptance. I'm not the only one. And somebody understands why I feel like this. Now, what's interesting about the happy songs, which does relate to some of my work, is that because they make you move. It's very hard to listen to a very happy song and not start dancing. So true. And there's this That's theory so in psychology, and I wrote a book about this, which is that 
the way we behave comes before how we feel. So we think, oh, we feel sad or we feel happy, so we smile. In fact, the opposite is also true. If you force your face into a smile, you start to feel happier. So what's interesting about that happy music is that it might be that it makes you move like a happy person, and that's what causes you to feel happy. Yeah, that could be. In other words, you're behaving like the sort of person you want to feel like. And it's that behavior which then forces the emotion. That's the sort of thing psychologists love to get excited about. Sometimes pretending to be okay can be really detrimental, but sometimes it can be really helpful. You know, if you look in the mirror at the beginning of the day, check yourself, I'm still breathing, okay, I'm still here, put on a happy face and just walk into the world. It can make such a difference. But if you continue to do that and there's something really, really wrong. Yeah, yes, of course. That's just putting on the makeup, isn't it? And that's not so good. Yeah. So it's all about balance and it's it's about kind of like, how do we know what to do? That's why we need help from other people. We can't live this life alone. Oh, yeah, I think that's right. The thing I was always told years and years ago. So I, I went to perform at the Magic Castle in America, in um, Hollywood. And I had this terrible, terrible trip. I was about 19 or 20. And I had a suitcase that was really cheap. And it got caught in the kind of security barrier in the airport. And I ripped the handle off the suitcase. So I had to carry my suitcase. It's really bad. And I went to New York to Times Square and had my bag stolen. Everything was a disaster. But on that trip, I met two people that changed my life. And I don't know who they are. There are two people that saw me looking upset at different times as he had a chat with me and changed everything. And one of them said, everything will change. Just know whatever position you're in now, it will change. So if you're having a rough day as you are, know that in the future, you'll have good days. So just know that this is not a lifelong thing. It might last a day, it might last a week, but it will change. But equally, if you're having a great time, that'll go at some point in the future. <gasps> yeah. And so enjoy it right now, because it's not going to last forever. Live for the moment. Yes. And talking of which, so I'm fascinated by psychology performance. So friends of mine in Vegas and so on have to do the same, but much like you, do go out and do the same show again and again and again and again. And it might be slightly different with music, I don't know. But if you're a verbal performer, you have to keep it fresh for the audience. And the question is, how you do that when you're doing it night on night? And what my friend does, I, I shouldn't really mention names, but what my friend does, this very experienced performer, stands in the wings and says, one day... I'm going to be too old to do this, or I'm not going to be well enough to do this. Oh. Or I'm not going to be very popular, and I'm not going to sell enough tickets to do it, and it's going to finish. And then he lets that sort of seep in, and then he goes, not tonight, though. Oh, I just got goosebumps when you said that. What a lovely, lovely thing. That's the advice for, for nerves. It's great, isn't it? That is, yeah. I use it all the time. It keeps you grateful, and it's going to be absolutely true. At some point, we're not going to be able to do what we love. Yeah. And it's so easy to think, oh, I've got to grind one more time. And actually go, you know what? At some point, it's going to go. It's not now. Not today. Not today. There we go. I love that. Thank you for that. I'm definitely going to talk to myself at the side of the stage now. Wow. It's, I've, I've used it for years. It's great. It is a real blessing. It's, you know, it's a lovely thing to be able to do, to be able to give that many people at one time a good feeling. You feel purposeful. And the music thing must be amazing. I've never had that. My stuff has always been verbal. And I think that's got 
sort of limitations. A music thing must be incredible because it's got such energy to it. Well, it depends if you pick the right one. But okay, so the shows in Vegas, you know, the shows that they put together that are um, recurring like every Friday night. I don't know if they have exactly the same show at night, but I imagine they do because they've got dancers and they've got pyro and they've got all that stuff that you can't really change your show. But the smaller you are, you don't have pyro and dancers. So you are just as free. And you have to read the audience the same way that you would if you were talking to them. You might have to change some jokes or some magic tricks to kind of really get their attention. So my set list isn't really a set list. And I tell the band members, especially if they're new to the team, this probably isn't going to be the way that it goes. So just know the songs. This is the list. It's not a set list. It's more of just a list of songs that we as a band know. So I will look down that list and I'll decide based on exactly how they're acting. Okay, these people, they want a ballad. These people need to dance. And, you know, and if I don't know what to do, there's one song that we call the Game Changer. It's called Music and it starts really quiet. So the people that aren't listening won't be listening at the beginning. And it gets massive, like completely monstrously scary massive. And people have their little solos. And then by the end of it, Usually the audience is like, oh, okay, I'm in. And then I can play what I want. So, you know, I have tools that I pull on. So I imagine you might have magic tricks that you think this one is the best one. I'm going to save this for a moment of like worry. You know, when I think it's going wrong, I'm going to hit them with the rabbit out the hat. Absolutely. But the difference is I'm always working on my own. I haven't got a band and, and a big sort of lighting rig and all that stuff. But how do you communicate with the band? Do you introduce like, like number four? And they all go into number four. I like, tell them, I say, let's play music. And then half of them go, what? What are we playing? Huh? <laughs> and then whoever's closest to me at the moment, it's Steve, my guitar player. He's like, she said music. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, it's quite funny. The audience aren't hearing any of that. The audience aren't hearing any of that. I'm assuming. People at the front do and they laugh. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. that's funny. <laughs> yeah. I think the less professional it is, apart from the actual performance, the better. Because people just feel like, oh my God, it's just normal. Because it is, we're just normal human beings making noises that people happen to like at the time. I think the key word for me there is authenticity. If you think the performer is being authentic, it's just being them in that moment, I think people really respond to that. It's when they think, oh, you're just phoning this in, or you've done it a million times, you don't care, or whatever. Yeah. But with really big crowds, I've heard performers say, you know, I could reach halfway back, but I couldn't get all the way to the back. Do you have that experience? Yeah, I do. I always think of that Live 8 thing that was in London. So there was the second Live 8. The first one, I wasn't there, obviously, but the second one I was. And there was about a million people in the park. Like a million. <laughs> Can you imagine that? I'm lucky to get 30 in a room. <laughs> it's not me, though. It was the festival. A I just happened people. to be there. A million. A million people. I mean, it just went back and back. And they just put speakers back and back and back and back so people could hear it. But of course, you can't connect with those people. You can't even see them. They're just listening to a radio show at that point. Yeah, no, it's the first little chunk. I like playing to about a thousand people is my favorite. Oh, really? Two thousand okay. is nice, but a thousand is like the best because you really are like every person. I can shout to the person in the back. I can be like, hey, I see you. Hold your lighter up, you know, and that's what it's about. It's a, it's a human connection. Everything in this life that we enjoy usually revolves around an authentic human connection. I think that's that word, that word authentic. Yeah. And, and also likability. 
you know, if they like you, I think you're going to be, from my perspective, get away with all sorts of stuff. If they don't like you, they're just on your back all the time and any slip or any is problematic. It's likability. I did a gig. I can't remember. It was in like a 500-seater or something like that. And there, well, I looked out, and there were like 10 people there. And so it's the worst possible thing, like oh, 10 people. No. And mine's a verbal thing. So, I, oh, my goodness. And I said to the person with me, you know, oh, I can't believe it. As obviously there's some problem or something. And they said, look, you know, get them together at the front, which wouldn't have taken very long. And they said, just celebrate the seven that turned up. Mm-hmm. And not the 493 that didn't. <laughs> and they said, why take it out on these seven that all of the other people didn't? And so that's always been my attitude is like, let's celebrate what we've got and not the, all the people that didn't turn out. You don't have that problem. But no, it's the half full attitude to life and it makes yes. life more fun. I have to tell you that I have had many gigs like that. And the reason why is because I went to mad places. I did a world tour, including every single country. So I've been to places where people they didn't understand what the hell I was talking about I'm surprised they even turned up at all so we were in the Congo and yeah there was 20 people maybe 20 people there and then I think they were there by accident I think they thought they were seeing something else you know so luckily once I started singing the doors were open there was people walking past so people started to come in once the music had started but seriously it is the most awful feeling because you think there's not enough people here to make a vibe. That's right. And actually, the vibe is there because the people are there, even if there's five of them. I played a cafe in Mauritania. It was a pizza cafe. And in the end, people came off the street. So thank God. But at the beginning, there was like literally six people sat there. And I'm like, oh, no. But did they know who you were? Like you had played to a million people. Yeah, the six people that came did. That's why they came. And half of them were German. They weren't from there. Right. Okay. And one of them I gave a cat, but that's a whole other story. You gave them a cat? I found a cat. Right. This is really random off-piste. Where did you find the cat? In Mauritania, on the floor. Well, we flew in, and then I walked out the airport, and I saw this tiny little kitten. It must have just been born, like, a few days before. It was teeny. And it was running around, on the like, in the street. And I picked him up, and I thought... Oh, am I going to do that? I can't put him back down. No. I looked for his mum. There's no mum anywhere. No other kittens, nothing. I'm like, I'm not just going to put him back down. I've got to look after him. But I've also got to leave in two days because I'm only here to play a show. So my tour manager was like, he was like, oh, for God's sake, can you please just put the kitten down? But I can't. I just can't. I have to look after this baby. He's like, oh, get in the bloody car. <laughs> so I get in the car. I've got this little baby. And I'm thinking, Jesus, what am I going to do now? I can't take the kitten on a plane to the next place. I have to find somebody. So in my gig, I'm sat there singing to no people. And some of them, there was a table of Germans. And I was like, they know me somehow. Otherwise, they wouldn't be here. And the lady was so sweet. Hello, we're from Germany. We're so happy to see you. I was like, great. Do you live here? Oh, yes, I live here for a year to work and blah, blah. I was like, amazing. Do you love animals? <laughs> you gave them the cat. Yeah, she's now the owner, the mummy of that kitten. And she sent me pictures of the adult cat now. And, oh, it's just so sweet. So, yeah, worth it. But that's changed their life. They might not have wanted a cat. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Definitely changed the cat's life. Yeah, that's great. Otherwise, I would have just had to put him outside. But 
he wasn't big enough. You know, cats really can survive outside. Oh, yes. I have a cat in Devon. She literally just lives out in the forest and gets fed by my neighbours. And she's cool. She's no drama whatsoever. She is a hardcore... Devon cat. Yeah. No one's messing with her. But this one was tiny. She wasn't ready. The thing is, that went very well. It was a fairly small gig. I think you should replicate that with some of your bigger gigs. That could be your thing. You always come on and give out a kitten every performance. <laughs> yes, that could turn into my thing. Yes. Yeah, my calling card. You could do that with the silent record, because if you put out a record with no songs on it at all, except that halfway through the show, you come out and give out a kitten to somebody in the audience. Yes. This could be huge for you. Okay. Yeah. Well, you are a psychologist, so... Yes, trust me. How could it go wrong? <laughs> That's a brilliant idea. <laughs> right. No, you just said you've written books. I want to tell people the names of these books, please, because they're going to need to know. So we've got The Luck Factor we spoke about. Luck Factor was the first one. That was on psychology of lucky and unlucky people. Okay. So do you believe, I want to understand what you think luck is before I read this book. Yes. Well, luck is things working out well for you. Just by chance. Well, so it's not going to the casino and doing well at roulette because that's genuinely chance. So I don't think it doesn't matter whether you're optimistic or pessimistic, you're probably still going to lose your money. But in everyday life, the people that you meet, the opportunities you get, your career, your love life and so on, I think we all ascribe certain things to luck, but actually we're creating that good and bad luck by the way we think and behave. And the luck factor was based on a thousand lucky and unlucky people I studied, looking at the strategies that lucky people use to produce their their own good luck. There we are, it's the whole book. Ten years of research in, in a few sentences. So this luck is not the cards that you're dealt in life. This luck is literally how you live your life will determine how well it goes. That's correct. And in fact, there's one chapter on there on the importance of giving away a kitten. Oh, really? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow, it's the weirdest thing. <laughs> amazing. You don't need to read that chapter. Do you believe in karma? Yes, exactly. <laughs> but it is. It's karma. Good karma. Yeah, good karma. <laughs> yes. So I did that. And then I did another book. I was at a meeting at a coffee with a friend of mine, CEO of quite a big organization. And she said she wasn't very happy, as in fact, a lot of my very successful friends, often not the happiest people. And so she said, what can I do? You understand about happiness, Wiseman. What can I do to be a bit happier? So I started to explain theories of happiness. And she stopped me and said, look, you're going on a bit. Can you just cut it down? And I said, how long have you got? And she said, about a minute. So I thought, I think there's some things I can tell you about happiness in a minute. And I did that. Walked away from that pretty much a chance meeting and thought, there's a lot of psychology you could communicate in just a minute. So I did a book called 59 Seconds, which is things you can learn in less than a minute. But the origin of that book is that chance conversation. And that's what I mean about being quite open to change. You know, there was no way I went to that conversation thinking I'm going to do that sort of book. But I thought, oh, there's a good idea there. There's something sitting in that concept. And if I'd have been closed-minded, I'd have gone off in another direction and missed the really interesting bit there. So that became 59 Seconds. So the idea is that you can really simplify things that seem to be very complicated, but they're actually not. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, if you want to increase your happiness, focusing on experiences rather than objects. So if you've got money to spend, actually buying an experience, going to see a film, going out for a meal with friends, going skydiving, whatever it is, you get far more happiness points for that 
than going and buying a new pair of training shoes or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons is those experiences normally connect you to others. They give you something to talk about and, and so on. And they don't age in quite the way that other goods do. So it's all those sorts of things you can learn quite quickly. That's 59 seconds. I was looking into this book and it said in like a little one-liner about the book, how you can achieve your ambitions in under a minute. Yes, that's 59 seconds. It's really about how you can understand how you can achieve your ambitions, right? So yes. you can... Oh, I see yeah. what you mean. Yes. Yeah, no, you, won't be, you won't be achieving your ambitions. That would be great, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> wouldn't that be great? That would be amazing. You're kidding me. In a minute? <laughs> yeah, a minute. I want to be able to run a marathon. Oh, it took me a minute. And that book would sell. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't be yeah. true, but it would sell. But it's changing people's mindset in a very quick space of time. Yeah, a very quick way. It's the fastest book I've written. They normally take about six months, and that was about three months because I realized I got it all. Yeah, exactly. I did that a minute. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've got the rest of the day free. I didn't know what to do oh, myself. It's brilliant. So I did that. And um, yes, it's all fun and games. I feel like concerned that the people that need, like really need to read these books and really need to like focus in on their lives to really fix their lives can be people that naturally just wouldn't. So it's almost like those that are listening to this would be interested in bettering their world or having a laugh or whatever. They might be able to give advice to somebody that wouldn't. But the person that wouldn't really does need it, you know. So people that are like, I have a friend of mine that is in and out of drug addiction a lot and very like depressed about life in general. And if you look at his life, you see all the beauty. And, you know, he's got kids and family and people that love him and all sorts of wonderful things going on. But he can't see it. And there is no way on God's green earth that he would sit and read a book like that, or listen to a psychologist, or anything. You're just not interested. So how do you help somebody that really is just, they're that far down the spiral? We need advice on that. I certainly do. Well, there's a couple of things. One, if people have got very serious problems, they probably shouldn't be reading books. They should be seeing professionals. Yeah, but they don't want to. That's the problem. That's the problem. A clinician said to me once that what was interesting about the luck factor was that as people become more and more depressed, they become harder and harder to reach. Yeah. But early on, actually, it's not quite so difficult. And early on with depression, often people will label themselves as unlucky rather than depressed. At that point, they will reach out for a book because they haven't decided that it's part of their self-image to be down. Once you decide who you are, that can be a terrible kind of handicap because you get back to the, the growth mindset idea. Once you've decided that this is it, you're set in, in, in concrete and you're not going to change and that you can't change, then you become very fatalistic and it's a very damaging worldview. I think just letting people know, as I said before, everything will change. They will change. They will be a different person in five years' time. And sometimes reminding them they were probably a different person five years ago. And since then, they've gained new skills or, or changed relationships or whatever. I think understanding that we are we are fluid creatures and we're often different, even in different situations. You know, you go to a party, you're a different person to when you're just quietly making some food at home. We're defined by our situations. We're defined by where we are to our lives and we will change. Otherwise, life would be really, really dull if we just knew who we were and that was that. I think that's the key message with everyone, but particularly resistant folks. Don't think that you're set in stone. You know, the one thing the brain is really, really, really good at is changing, is learning. Think how quickly, you know, 
You watch a film and you can remember it the next day. You can learn to juggle. You can learn a language. You can listen to one of your songs and remember it months and weeks. The brain takes the information and it changes. We are not static beasts. I think that's the key point. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Richard. This has been such a lovely chat. Oh, my pleasure. It's been lots of fun. You filled up my day with laughter and joy at the beginning of the day. So thank you for that. I think everyone that has to deal with me today will have a better time because of oh, our chat. I'm, I'm sure they have a <laughs> lovely time anyway. No, uh, I was well, like, I woke up this morning. I woke up an hour ago. I was a total bitch. No. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I was. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, I now I'm going to talk to Wiseman. This will be dreadful. I was like, <laughs> I can't handle this. <laughs> no, I feel much better now. Good. So. Well, it's, it's been it's been a pleasure, a pleasure chatting. And um, I'm glad we went off in so many different directions. That was fun. <laughs> yeah, me too. Before you click off, I just want to say thank you. Thank you to all of you, whether you listen to every episode or you've only just found us today. It means so much that you're here on this happiness journey with us. My understanding of happiness is changing and evolving every time I speak to one of my amazing guests. But what I really hope is that you're getting something out of it too. That's why we do this. I want you to be able to live a happier, more fulfilled life. And one of the easiest ways to do that, as we've learned, is to help the people around you improve theirs. So here's my challenge to you. Think about one thing that you learned from my guest today. Really think about how it could change your happiness or improve your happiness. Now, tell one person, just one person will do, and make their day a little better. Share the love. Thanks again for listening. See you next time for another cup of happy. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. <laughs> to be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.